be in the Old Testament Scriptures to the 120th Psalm, Psalm number 120, which we will read in full, the short psalm of only seven verses. A Song of Ascents. I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. Save me, O Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. What will he do to you, and what more besides, O deceitful tongue? He will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows, with burning coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshach, but I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I am a man of peace, but when I speak, they are for war. May God bless to our under. Scriptures to the 120th Psalm, Psalm number 120, which we will read in full, this short psalm of only seven verses. A Song of Ascents. I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. Save me, O Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. What will he do to you? And what more this besides, O deceitful tongue? He will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows, with burning coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshach, but I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I am a man of peace, but when I speak, they are for war. May God bless to our understanding this portion of his own inspired word. Now, following a short series of sermons and expositions upon a number of biblical topics during the last several Sunday mornings, we are beginning today a short series of morning sermons and expositions through a portion of the Psalter, the book of Psalms, that is known to us as the Songs of Ascents. And they comprise together Psalms 120 to 134, 15 of these lovely Songs of Ascents in all. And though we may not preach through the whole body of these psalms at this time, I believe this series in God's providence will certainly take us through December and into the month of January. Someone has described these psalms as a short psalter within the psalter. They are songs evidently, we believe, that were used by the godly Israelites in their pilgrimages from many of the cities and towns where they lived in the land of Israel, up to Jerusalem for the three great feasts where every male in Israel was commanded to appear before the Lord on the occasion of the Passover feast, and later in the year on the occasion of the Feast of Firstfruits, 
when the early harvest was ingathered and brought as an offering before the Lord, and at the end of the year, at the Feast of Harvest ingathering. And this is indeed, we believe, the songbook of the pilgrims as they journeyed their difficult and often dangerous way to worship the Lord in his temple in Jerusalem. Now, all of these psalms are songs, as you will notice. They bear the same title, a song of ascents, and occasionally a song of ascents of David. And they express one and all the deep hunger and thirst for fellowship with God they have a growing awareness of the value of spiritual things at their hearts. A consciousness that develops as you read these psalms of the sheer privilege and glory of being able to worship the Lord in the fellowship of his people. Now if you were to ask me this morning, why should we study these psalms and this particular portion of the Psalter I would, I think, give you three very brief answers. The first is that they are part of the church's hymn book. Now, we value singing the psalms, at least I trust we do, and it's one of the great blessings to my own soul of using the Trinity hymnal, the large selections of the psalms that it includes, that from the best possible source of praise, in the very words that God himself has inspired, we might praise the Lord together. And you see, one purpose of studying these songs is that the more we understand the thoughts of the psalmist, the more intelligently we shall be able to praise the Lord as we turn to these psalms from time to time in our own Trinity hymnal. Another reason why we should study them is surely this, that they faithfully mirror all the range of Christian experience in our own lives. It continually amazes me, as a pastor and expositor of the Word of God, how things that happen in my own Christian life are there already mirrored in the Scriptures. The hunger and thirst that the Christian feels that is satisfied as he comes into the presence of God, the doubt that bedecks our way and is replaced by a confidence as we come and we read in the Psalms how godly men also doubted the presence of God and his help in time of need and were delivered into a large place. The sorrows that we feel, replaced by joy in the Lord, the anguish that our souls undergo, turn to praise to his name. Indeed, you see, to know these psalms is, as one of the commentators says, to have a key to every dark dungeon in this world. And that's a reason why we should study them together. But the third reason is this, and in many ways it's the most glorious one of them all. They encourage us to praise the Lord more. And it was Augustine in the fourth century in his great confessions that some of you have read who said this, that confession of sin, all Christians seem to understand, but confession of praise, how few, said Augustine, attend to this. 
And what we need to do, beloved, as we come to these psalms on these Sunday mornings, is to say to ourselves, they arise from hearts that are on fire for God. How great God is, and how greatly he is to be praised among his people. And that's why we should study these psalms together further. Now I appeal to you this morning as we begin with Psalm 120. Look at these writings. Look at them with fresh eyes. Look at them in the light of your own life and the way that God is leading you in your pilgrimage upon the earth. And you will come to one conclusion as we study them, that we have hardly begun to feel the pulse of the deep universe of praise but it is at the heart of this portion of the Psalter. Now we've come, as I say this morning, to Psalm 120, the very first of these 15 psalms. And you'll notice that the background to this psalm as we study it is of a man whose heart is thirsting after God, a man who is, as it were, in the wilderness of this world, surrounded by the enemies of God and a hostile environment who is beginning to take the very first step of pilgrimage toward the Lord, who is beginning to seek after him and long for his fellowship. And as we approach this psalm this morning, do we need any reminder of its New Testament counterparts? For instance, from Hebrews 11 that describes the great heroes of faith, but they were all of them strangers and pilgrims upon the earth looking for a city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. Or in the words that Peter uses in 1 Peter 1 verses 1 and 2, as he writes to God's elect and describes them as strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. Or in chapter 2 of the same letter, writing to them and exhorting them to seek that city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God, he says to them as aliens and strangers in this world, you are to abstain from sinful desires and so forth. Beloved, this psalm is yours this morning as a pilgrim and a stranger in the wilderness of this world. And may God the Holy Spirit so enable us that we may ascend the growing steps of deeper communion with the God we love and serve as we study it together here. Now, first of all, do you notice with me this morning that in the psalm, the pilgrim is giving vent to his problem. And you have that in verses 5 through 7. Do you notice what he writes there? Woe to me, he says, that I dwell in Mesek, that I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I am a man of peace, but when I speak, they are for war. 
Now, why have we gone in our study this morning to the very ending of this psalm rather than to its commencement and its beginning? The answer, I think, should be obvious to you all here today. But at the conclusion of the psalm is a very poignant and powerful description of the psalmist's condition, his very situation, his very problem that he is facing, but leads him in that anguished cry with which the psalm begins to call upon the Lord in his distress. Why does he do that? What is his situation? What is his problem? Well, it's so eloquently and, as I say, so poignantly and powerfully described for us in verses 5 through 7. Now look at the several things that he says as we I begin to identify with him. First of all, you notice his situation in verse 5. Woe to me, he cries out, that I dwell in Meshach, and that I live so long among the tents of Kedar. Well, his situation, you see, is this. He appears to be a man who is alone. He feels himself alone. He feels, in effect, that he is so alone that he is living, as it were, among foreigners in a foreign and distant land, far away, evidently, from the temple of the Lord and from that communion with God of which the temple so clearly speaks. He's a stranger there in these strange and alien parts. He's living among strangers. And he feels himself cut off from God's people, from that sweet fellowship that once he knew and enjoyed and entertained to the full, from the house and temple of God and of his presence at Jerusalem. Well, how do we know that? Well, do you notice how he describes it there in verse 5? He says, Woe is me that I dwell in Meshach. Well, what is Meshach? The Hebrew word literally means a prolonging or a continuance. And in Scripture, if you go back far enough, you find that the name is descriptive of a very barbarous tribe that lived very far away from the land of Israel and Jerusalem, in, inhabited, in fact, what is modern Turkey at the north of that land, toward the Black Sea in northern Asia Minor, as we would call it, and later moved even further north in history. So he's thinking of a people to the very far north, and he's speaking as though he had a long continuance, a prolongation of his life as he lived among this barbarous and pagan and irreligious lot. And then he uses, you notice, secondly, the term kedar, which in Hebrew means blackness or black. And it describes a wandering Bedouin tribe of the Arabian desert, living to the south of Israel. And so, you see, the picture is of the long distance between them, the barbarians to the north, the barbarians to the south. And almost certainly we are to understand this reference not as him literally living in these distant places. He could not live at the same time both in the north and in the extreme south. And it calls for a spiritual or allegorical, allegorical interpretation. And he's saying to us, you see, in effect, I am like that. 
a man who is living among people who have taken me as far away from home as they possibly could. This is not my real home where I am. This is not where I desire to be, he's saying. But I have to put up with it. Long continuance in this godless, hostile environment where I find myself now. Now do you begin to see, my dear friends, it's a very eloquent picture of a man at his wit's end, a man who is beginning to feel that he is beyond all human help. His environment is not his choice, it's not his real home. He wouldn't choose to live there. He's surrounded by pagans. Almost certainly, he's describing the irreligion and the hostility and the ungodliness of his own native Israelites. It's they who have taken him, if they could, as far away as possible from where he would really like to be. And he's suffering long continuance in this dark and desperate and depressing place that he calls by the name of Kedar. And this is his situation. Now do you see, secondly and further, their attitude to him in this place in verses 6 through 7? Too long, he says, have I lived among those who hate peace. I am a man of peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Now what is this attitude that he's describing to us here? Well, quite simply, it's obvious that they are treating him like an enemy, aren't they? The Hebrew is very evocative at this point. It, it literally says, I am peace. They are war. And he's being treated like one then who doesn't belong to their community at all, who is not part of their environment. And they realize it, and they see the difference. And it's as though he sees himself living among hostile foreigners who are equipped and ready to wound him and destroy him on every possible occasion. Now do you see what I'm saying to you, my dear friends, this morning? This is not just the psalmist expression of where he is. It is the expression of where the Christian is in his world today. Nothing has changed, really. The world is still today the same hostile, resentful, persecuting world that it has always been. And we are living ourselves in the midst of this alien and hostile environment that surrounds us almost like a thick and impenetrable darkness. The world is against the church. There is resentment of the way of life that God's people follow. There is opposition to the godly, as we'll see in a moment. And you see what he's describing for us here is what you read of in the Pilgrim's Progress, with which a number of you are very familiar. When Christian and his companion Faithful come, you remember, into Vanity Fair, which is Bunyan's picture of this fallen and sinful world, they pass through its streets and its bustling marketplaces where all manner of the world's wares are on sale. And they are called to by the men of the world, buy this, purchase that. 
And you remember their memorable reply in Bunyan's words, We buy the truth. And immediately that fair is drawn to a silence. Its hustle and its bustle cease. Its hubbub stops. The world is arrested by this new and strange and alien way of life that has suddenly come into their midst. And they lay hands on these men and lead them to trial. And it ends with the glorious martyrdom, you remember, of faithful pilgrim's companion. Now you see what the psalmist is describing is exactly that to us this morning. Figuratively, the distance of the Christian's real home and abode from where he is in this dark and often sinful world in which we live. And do you notice the cry of his heart? It's not nearly expressive enough there in verse 5. Woe is me, literally, how wretched I have been, he says, living in Meshach and living among Kedah's tents. Beloved, it's the homesickness of the godly in the midst of an ungodly world. And it stings him to begin to take the pilgrim's path. Let me ask you this morning, are you there where he is? Are you becoming increasingly ill at ease with your living in this world? Let me say to you that is a good and a healthy thing. It's what we should expect in the life of men and women of God and of you children who have come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are no longer in your natural environment but in a hostile environment. And you would not choose to be there if you had any choice in the matter at all. And I want you to notice, beloved, that the very first step in these lovely songs of ascent, that every one of them take us nearer to the presence of God, begins with a man who is increasingly ill at ease in this world. Do you feel the painfulness of this environment this morning? The organized kingdom of the carnal mind surrounding you at every turn so that you are driven to identify this morning with this godly man who is in a continuous situation, you notice, of warfare because his strictness of life is being decried by the ungodly. They are attributing wrong motives to his obedience. They are playing true to his face, but false behind his back. There is continual warfare between the world and the church of the living God. And here we are, my dear friends, as a dove in the midst of hawks. Do you feel that pressure upon your life as Abraham did when he went to Gerah in the book of Genesis and said of the people there, surely the fear of God is not in this place. Or like Lot in Sodom who vexed his righteous soul because of the misdeeds of that wicked place. 
or of John Calvin writing of those true believers in the midst of the medieval darkness of the Roman Catholic Church, as he said of them, they could not live in the midst of the pollutions of that age without great anguish of spirit. This is not my home, but I've had to put up with it. How well we know it and should know it. And it should create in us a deep longing for the sacred place of fellowship to which we come again and again to be renewed and refreshed. Living as we do in a home that we cannot call by any stretch of the imagination our own. Now this, you notice, leads to the second great stage of the psalmist reflection. He not only shares with us his problem in verses 5 through 7, but at the end of verse 2 and through verse 4, you have his persuasion. He's beginning to take a step up already out of this condition. Now what is the purpose of these verses as he prays, Save me from lying lips and from deceitful tongues? Well, the answer is, but he's beginning to ask the question, what can I do about being where I am and suffering what I am undergoing? And as he begins to ask that question, you see, it leads to a growing conviction of his heart and a persuasion that the Lord is fully aware of his situation and will give him a way of dealing with it. Now look with me at what he does say in these verses 2 through 4. You see, notice first that he's not in need of defense against armed foes, but against false tongues. In other words, he's surrounded in these verses by a choking atmosphere of falsehood from which he longs to escape to purer air. Look at what he writes. The tongue slanderous, flattering, untrustworthy in promises of friendship. And here is this man longing for fellowship with God. Beloved, have you felt this pressure on your own life? In the hostile environment of the world you live in today? Because I suggest to you, there's nothing more appalling and abhorrent to the servant of God in this world than the empty, godless talk that simply dominates the worldling's life. Here is the devout heart, longing for the fresh streams of Zion, and he's living in the midst of dissonance between his own deep yearnings after God and this babel of vain words that fills every place with jangle and deceit. Do you know anything of this today? Can you live again this experience of the psalmist? The deep, dark pit that he sees suddenly yawning before him as he sees a revelation of the iniquity of men's hearts by the way they use their tongues. Do you sufficiently realize that our speech is not inconsequential? 
A man's speech, beloved, is an index to the state of his heart. And here is a man living in the midst of a people who know how to use words brilliantly for the devil. And here is the tongue, busy, spoiling, blighting, corrupting, deceiving, destroying, disturbing, unsettling the man of God. So that just as James says in the body of his epistle, the tongue is a little member, but it sets the whole course of nature on fire and is itself set on fire of what? Of hell, he says. And he is in this awful predicament from which he cries with a heartfelt cry for the Lord to save and deliver him. And beloved, it is a painful thing, and I speak from personal experience, where the tongue is turned against the believer, the godly, his church, with satanic venom laced upon it. And it's a very painful and excruciating experience, indeed, when someone comes with their great sharp harrows and runs them over, the servant of God. Thomas Bernardo knew this, that great founder of Bernardo's homes in Stepney in London, as he was vilified and maligned in the public press of his day. George Mueller, that wonderful man of faith who founded a great orphanage in Bristol in the United Kingdom, well knew the venom of the tongue. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, was a man attacked and vilified in the public press for many years of his life. Andrew Bonar, in that lovely autobiography of his life, reprinted recently by the Banner of Truth Trust, speaks in one place as an 80-year-old man, a pastor. He speaks in one place of receiving some very wicked anonymous letters these days. And all know the suffering under those who know how to use words brilliantly for the devil. But here is the point, you see. The psalmist doesn't stay there. Because in verses 3 and 4, he begins to ask the question. He begins to ascend the step up toward God. What will he, that is the Lord, do to you? And what more besides, O deceitful tongue? And he answers that God will punish that person and these persons with warriors of the sharp that are sharp and with the burning coals of the broom tree. In other words, he is coming to the position of persuasion and conviction that God sees him in that situation and he is already beginning to take him out of it and to promise deliverance to his much-tried servant in that place. And you see how it comes about. The punishment is condign, if it is anything. It is fitting the crime. The tongue which shot, shot, sharpened arrows is itself, says the psalmist, about to be pierced by arrows far sharper of an irresistible mighty one, the Lord. 
and those coals that burned into this man's soul as he was traduced and vilified and misrepresented. Those coals themselves, heated to a white pitch of intensity, would be turned back upon the very heads of those who were his tormentors and perpetrators and would consume them surely. You see, it's a vivid metaphor in which the punishment is made to fit the crime. The judgment of God, he says, will sooner or later catch up with the evildoer. Now, where does this leave us? Well, it leaves us, you see, in this position that he begins to realize, perhaps as he's never realized before, but in this hostile and alien environment, the virtues of truth and honor and the outworking of God's justice, these are ideals that are foreign to the world. And if he is ever to be saved in that environment from those lying lips that are prone to lie and the deceitful tongue that is running amok and out of control, it is to the Lord that he must look. He needs to cry, you see, for God's help under this detraction and slander in this ungodly world, amid these hostilities, as his sensitive spirit is bruised by the untruths that are being spoken, his way out of that environment is a way in to the presence of the living God. I read many years ago the words of Augustine, who was a great host to many men through the long years of his ministry in the fourth century. And on one of his great dining tables, he had encarved the slogan, Whoever slanders absent men may never at this table eat again. But this kind of conviction the psalmist has realized is foreign to the world's standards. And he's at his wit's end and he's beyond human help. And this drives him no marvel into the presence of God at the beginning of the psalm. Look at it, verses 1 and 2. I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me, Save me, O Lord. So that we end, not with the psalmist's problem, not with his persuasion as he begins to find his foothold again, but with the provision that he realizes the Lord has been making through it all. What is this man to do? What is the Christian man to do in a world in which he has no real home and domicile, who is surrounded by hostility and hurtful words that pierce him like the sharp arrows of the mighty? What is he to do? And the best counsel, beloved, is not to answer back to men but to look for a better direction and receive the only resounding answer that we can receive in that situation for the troubled soul by looking to the Lord. 
Now, do you notice how he does this? And we're drawing to a conclusion. The verbs in verse 1 that in our translation are in the present tense are really in the Hebrew past tense. And everyone is agreed that what the psalmist is doing here is something very significant. He's saying, I have called on the Lord in my distress in times past, even as I am doing still now. And he has answered me in the past. And this is the basis of my conviction and assurance that he will hear and answer me now. Do you see what I'm saying? What Jehovah has done before, says this man, I am confident he will do again. He looks back and he remembers how he has been heard and answered in days before. And he is sure that God will not withhold his hand now. You see, it's in great contrast, isn't it, to what men often do. They say, I have given so often, I've no more to give. But the Lord says, I have given before, therefore I will give again and again and again to you. And his heart, you see, turns to the Lord Jehovah and to the, to the dwelling place of his glory and to the holy house of worship. And already he is being lifted out of his discouragement and out of his problems as he cries to Jehovah for help on the basis that he has cried before and been heard before. But do you notice the second thing? That the heart is fixed where? On Jehovah alone. Not on the failing and fleeting help of men or some human stratagem to get him out of this impenetrable situation. And one of the great things we're going to notice about these 15 Psalms is how each of them, almost without fail, begins with a man whose heart is fixed upon Jehovah. I cry to the Lord, Psalm 120. Look at Psalm 121. I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. Psalm 122. Let us go up where? To the house of the Lord. Psalm 123. To thee will I lift up my eyes, O thou that dwellest in the heavens. Psalm 124. If it had not been the Lord, who had been our deliverer. Psalm 125, they that trust in the Lord, and so we could go on and on and on. Truly, you see, what has happened to this man is that because of his circumstances of living in Meshach and among the tents of Kedar, the blessed fruit has been that into this man's soul have come the ways of Zion. They have driven me, not in the direction they thought they would take me, far from God, but into his presence. And the psalmist's only hope of finding peace is through renewed fellowship and communion with God. My dear friends, as I close this morning, what does this say to you and to me this morning? 
Well, it says that if ever we are to mount these 15 steps of deeper communion of God with God in the songs of ascents, we need to begin here. In Meshach, in Kedar, feeling the pressures of a sinful, alienated world that is hostile to the things of God, that's where our longing for God should begin. And that's why I say to you this morning, beloved, worship begins before it begins. Don't think that you can come here on a Sunday morning and turn on worship like you turn on water out of a tap. Worship begins before it begins. As I live my daily life in the midst of a world that is not my home environment and my soul goes out to God and I long to meet him in his sanctuary and in the fellowship of his people, I've begun on the road of pilgrimage to God. I am deeply desiring with a longing heart that he might satisfy my hunger and quench my thirst. And you know, I think that's the main reason why our worship is so poor very often. We forget that it doesn't begin here in this place, but it begins there with the cry of the thirsty soul. But what it also says to us, and with this I finish this morning, but the Lord is our only resort, isn't he? As the psalmist found so clearly in the body of this psalm. Are oh, the wicked surrounding me on all sides. The tents of Kedar, the dwelling places of Meshach. Oh, I need to cry to God in the words of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. From gossips, Lord, from talebearers from writers of anonymous letters, from forgers of newspaper paragraphs, and all sorts of lie-mongers. Good Lord, deliver me. Are you the only Christian in your family this morning? Have you been in long continuance in Meshach, dwelling in the blackness of Kedar? Take it to the Lord. Are there few in the wilderness of this world with whom you can have real Christian fellowship? Call upon the Lord in your distress. Is there someone at work who's making your life miserable in this world and accusing you of things of which you know you are not guilty because you are a Christian? Bring your case before the Lord and ask him, to begin to work it out for you. And as you begin to do these things, you've begun on the first of the 15 steps, the renunciation of the evil and vanity of this ungodly world in which we live. It all begins here in the consciousness of the costliness and the difficulties of being strangers and pilgrims upon the earth. Oh, may God enable us 
Truly, in all our trials and loneliness and disappointments, in all our hunger and thirst, to climb these steps together in the songs of ascents and in these coming Sunday mornings to draw ever nearer to the blessed presence and the sanctuary of our God. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for this psalm, short as it is and seemingly lacking in substance as it might have appeared to many of us. Take its lessons, apply them to our hearts. Make us deeper Christians, Lord. Make us richer men and women of God because of our study of it. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.